Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellers and Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Prize Fighter. Before Christ rescues us, we are the punching bag of the big bully of sin. So what takes us from being puny little cowards and turns us into an unstoppable force of God's love upon this earth? It's none other than His Spirit, bearing the fruit of self-control within us. And with His mighty Spirit, He fully enables us to bring this rascally coward known as us into submission. Please contact us at www.lrc.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Father, we just bend our knee before you and we ask that you would rescue us from ourselves and from the comforts that are around us. This is a hard place to be a Christian. Lord, it's easy and that's why it's hard. Lord Jesus, to be what you intend us to be, we need trials. We need difficulty. The Christian life is built on the premise of suffering, strange as that is. We are made strong in and through it. We rejoice in and through it because Jesus Christ is revealed in and through us as a result of it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make sharp your body this morning, that you would convict us where conviction is necessary, that you would not allow us to subside into mediocrity. Rescue us from such an end. Precious Lord Jesus, receive the glory in our midst. Amen. I've the name of this message, the prize fighter, feels a little cheesy. Uh, I've had, oh, Sandy could maybe help me, but she doesn't even know about all the titles I didn't send her away. I, I really had a tough time putting a title to this. For whatever reason, titles are important to me. I'm not exactly sure why. But I had, uh, the bodyguard was the one right before this. Still a little cheesy, right? It's, this is a good title. It fits. It just has that awkward edge to it. I don't know what it is. And then I had License to Kill. I figured if that went online, people would start to wonder about us uh, and what our end motive was. Uh, and uh, so I took that one down, even though that one's perfect. Wait till you see how that one fits. Uh, I, had, uh, I had The Inner Clout of Self-Control, which just sounded way too complicated. So I put that as a subtitle of, sub, of a subsection, because that's, of course, really good, too. I ended up with this one. You see, there is a fight within the soul of a man or a woman that is twice born, that is second born, that has been made alive by Jesus Christ. Your life used to be the playground for the enemy, but then you came to Jesus Christ, and now you set up sentinels around that playground, if you will, that territory of your soul it's called a garrison in Scripture. That's the military term. When you take territory, you set up a guard over it. The strong man retains his riches. He puts a guard up around his soul. So that which is gained by Christ is then guarded and protected by Christ so that you no longer give it back over to the enemy. It's taken territory. You look at the Israelites of old when they were moving into the land of promise, the land of Canaan. It says, wheresoever your foot shall tread, I will give it to you. Now, wouldn't it be rather ridiculous? They take Jericho, and then they move on to the next city, and another uh, you know, country comes in, the Philistines come in and take Jericho because the Israelites moved on to another city. No, if you take Jericho, you leave behind a regiment to protect that which has been gained. Then you move to another city. You take that, you leave behind a regiment. It's called a garrison to guard the city. Okay? So... In this model of Christianity, there is something that is laid before us as the prize. It's Jesus Christ. It's the fullness of Jesus Christ. It's knowing Jesus Christ. 
That's the prize. Paul even uses the term, the prize, okay? And so this term, whereas it makes us think of Rocky, Balboa, is not necessarily supposed to lead you in that direction, okay? This is the scrap, the fight for the integrity of the soul of an individual, the integrity of the soul of a marriage, the integrity of the soul of a family, the integrity of the soul of a church of Jesus Christ. Because I must put up a guard and a garrison about my marriage, not just my individual soul, around my family, my home, and then I must put up a guard and a garrison around the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we do together as the body of Christ. Now the term in scripture for this is going to catch you a little off guard because it's a word that has been diminished. This last week we talked about patience here. Patience is such a wimpy word in the American language, in the English language. And so our understanding of it is so small, yet the scriptural use of it is huge. Patience, the Greek word hupomone, is the ability to endure great difficulty for great lengths of time. It's like the guy going into a concentration camp and the guards are trying to break him and change his mind to get him to recant and he refuses to bend no matter what pain they inflict upon him. What did that guy have? He had patience. It's not the way most of us would use it, but that's the biblical use of it. This word that I'm going to introduce you to, self-control. You know what? That's sort of a weak word too. It's not that impressive. It's not that it's not good to have. But patience and self-control are things little kids need. As we mature as adults, we don't need patience. You know, that's what you needed when you were, you know, pulling on your mom's arm and she was talking too long after church. You know, and self-control is, you, you know, you, you learn how to not have an outburst of rage when your toy breaks. Okay? And so self-control and patience are little kid things. Far from it in the Christian life. Okay? So this message is about self-control. The prize fighter, self-control. The bodyguard, self-control. Now I'll explain what self-control is because it's a very misunderstood concept. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. Now you'll notice that certain things are italicized. Now when I really want to emphasize, I make it big. Okay? I'm not actually trying to cause you to look at it. It's just I want to be honest in the translation department here. Uh, it typically says, in the translation that I have here, uh, it says everyone who competes, but then the ESV uses the term every athlete. And because it is an athlete that it's describing, I put that in, just because it adds a more robust understanding here. And the same thing is, it says uh, in the King James, temperance, but I'm putting in self-controlled. It's the same word, but most of us don't understand temperance. It's the same concept as self-control, but it's an old-fashioned word. So I'm putting in self-controlled. Every athlete who competes for the prize is self-controlled or is temperate in all things. Now they do it, speaking of the athlete, to obtain a perishable crown. But we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. In other words, I'm not just, if I'm running a race, I'm not just running off in any direction. I run the course that is set out. If I'm going to win it, I have to run in alignment with the rules. It says, no, you need to go in this direction, turn this corner, and go here. That's what he says. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, or in other translations, aimlessly. I'm not just wandering around. I know what I'm here for. I'm an athlete, and I know how to win this thing. And then it says, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. You know, some boxer, could you imagine him in the ring, and he's in this corner going, whoo, whoo. And here, you know, here's the audience out here. Here's the ropes, and he's like punching out there. The guy comes up behind him and goes, 
Yeah, if you're an idiot boxer, you box the air. But if you know how to win, you come up and you know your target and you hit him smack in the nose. That's how you win as a boxer. Now, I'm not a huge boxing fan, okay? So don't get the wrong idea because I call this the prize fighter that, you know, we're going to suddenly open up boxing studies here at Ellerslie. Not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it under control. Now, in the other translation, it says into subjection. But since the word self-control and under control, they are links. Okay, that's why I'm changing it there for you so you can understand it. In other words, the athlete brings, if he's going to compete for the prize, he must bring his body under control. He must be self-controlled. And so, but I discipline my body and bring it under control, says Paul. So he's like that athlete. However, he's not doing it for a perishable crown, something that just is, you know, worldly and temporary. He's doing it for an eternal one. His prize is very different. But he's saying, like an athlete, so am I. So, but I discipline my body and bring it under control, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. It's a statement of, so I take Jericho and then I move forward, and then what's behind me? I lose Jericho. How embarrassing is that? Start bragging to the next city about how we just took Jericho for Jesus Christ. And then everyone looks back over your shoulder and says, are you sure you took it? Because it looks like the Philistines have it now. Oh, 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 yeah. When I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Put the garrison in place. Okay? So, <clears throat> there's one of my titles that didn't make it. The Inner Clout of Self-Control. See, I really like this. It's just a confusing title because you have to know what the word clout means. And cloud is, it's a great word for this message. The problem is the words I'm attracted to don't always make sense to everyone else. The inner clout of self-control. Clout. Okay, there's two things that clout means, and this is very important for what we're going to be learning. Authority. First of all, it means influence, power, weight, sway, leverage, control, dominance, and muscle. If you have clout in any situation, that means you're carrying authority in that situation. The President of the United States has clout, okay? He just does. Whether or not you agree with him politically or not, he has weight. You don't really want to mess with the President because he holds the entire armed forces under his control. That's clout. It's authority. It's influence, power, weight, sway, leverage, control, dominance, and muscle, okay? And then you have this other meaning for clout. <laughs> yeah, clout, to be boxed in the nose. It is literally to be hit, to strike, to punch, smack, slap, thump, blow, hit, box, whap, whack, wallop. Isn't that a great word? Clout, to be clout, uh, to be clouted uh, in the nose. That's what it means. So authority and punch. Okay, this is very important. Because what you are learning is you've been hanging out in a ring. If we're going to use the boxing analogy, which is, you're going to think that I'm a very big fan of boxing here. I did grow up, my dad loved boxing growing up, so I used to watch uh, Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard, and you know, we'd, uh, I, I would do, I, and I loved it, I really did. I'm not as big of a fan of it now, so just so you know, I'm not trying to promote it. But I, I did watch it growing up, and when, so we have this ring, roped in ring, it's a little territory here. You got an enemy on one side, and here... You are the boxer on the other side. You're supposed to go out and you're supposed to knock him down. The problem is, you're a peewee. You don't have the ability to. So you cower in your corner and over and over and over again in your life, that big behemoth in the other corner known as sin 
comes over and just belts you, clouts you in the nose, and you find yourself on the mat. One, two, three, four. And, you know, pretty soon the sin has its fist raised in the air by the referees marching around your little ring saying, yeah, yeah, you're nothing, you're nothing. Anytime you want to try, I'll show you. And guess what? We're nothing. We're defeated. We have nothing to brag about. You know, we're one of those, you know how the, uh, the boxers that are all cocky and they're walking around like, it'll get you. That's not us. We're like, he's going to get me. He's going to get me. We've lost before we even enter the ring. You want to know what clout is? Clout is like some type of injection of some weird spiritual steroid. <laughs> you like grow ten times the size of whatever you've been. And you look down on this little dwarfish thing known as sin that no longer has power over you. And you come over and it starts to tremble a little. And you... <clears throat> actually what self-control is. I want you to realize this ring of your life is no longer dominated by the behemoth. That behemoth has no power here. Self-control. First, what it is not. Here's a great scripture for what it is not. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Now, most of us, the way that we interpret self-control is it's what we try not to do. In other words, if I'm going to be self-controlled, that means, well, I do not touch this, I do not handle that, I do not taste that, I do not uh, sniff at this, I, do, I stay out of these environments. Well... I'm not saying that that's a bad idea and you should do the opposite. But I'm here to tell you, those things will not change the strength of your enemy in that ring and they will not grow you stronger. You will still lose the battle when you stand up to fight it because you do not have strength in and through these things. This is actually not what self-control is. This is what we have presumed self-control means. To us, self-control means self Attempting to control the body. You could say, well, yeah, that's what it means, isn't it? No. You're like, what? What kind of confidence is that? You just ruined my entire life's definition of self-control. It is not self-attempting to control the body. That is not what it is. I want to explain what it is. These things do nothing to change your real root problem which is the flesh. The flesh has control of your body because you are seated in the throne position. When you take the throne position of your life that rightly belongs to Jesus Christ, the old man in the flesh now controls your body and what Paul calls your members. Your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mouth, your heart, your sexuality, your sleep, your appetite. These are under the control of the flesh. And you can attempt to curb them through your own efforts. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. What does it say? These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. You can't curb the problem that way. Just because you're trying not to get in the ring doesn't mean your enemy isn't prepared to clobber you the moment you do. 
You can do all sorts of things to try and make it seem as if you are doing something, but if you're still the little dinky dweeb in that ring, and he's the big behemoth, you lose when you stand up against him. Nothing's changed. You have not altered the state of the ring. Self-control, now what it is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Whoa, what, what's that doing there? See, you knew it was there. This isn't like a shocking scripture. You know that there's a human rendition of every single one of these on the list. You could do these in a human way. You could come up with your own version of love. How many love songs are out there? How many love, uh, or what are those movies called that are about uh, romance, romantic comedies or love dramas are out there? What, what, chick flicks, is that what? Joy. We have a version of joy, but it's all circumstantial. As long as your circumstances are lined up, well, you're happy. That's what most of us look at joy as. The fruit of the Spirit. These are things in Scripture that are clearly defined as supernatural. You cannot create them in your own strength and your own power. And as long as you sit enthroned in your life and the flesh controls you, you only can produce what's called the fruit of the flesh. You are unable to produce the fruit of the Spirit. So what is in this list but a very strange thing called self-control? You cannot control yourself in your own strength, seated on your own throne. Which is how most of us have always tried to be self-controlled. So what does this do to our definition? It sort of messes it up. Now some translations don't use the word self-control, okay? Ingratia is the word, and it means temperance, which doesn't make any sense to us either. Okay, so that's why we have to go a little deeper and understand what this word is. So how does this authority and punch work? Remember I was talking about clout. I'm going to say that self-control and clout are the same thing. Okay, I know that sounds strange. Remember when I called it a bodyguard or a sentinel? I'm using terms that most of us still don't understand. We understand what a bodyguard is. Some guy that stands by and, you know, takes a hit for you. It's not a full picture of what it is. Sentinel is the old classic concept of the secret service guy. A sentinel is one that stands guard and stands watch and will not only be a watchman, but also be a defender for dignitaries. And, you know, say it's the you know, president of the United States, you have the secret service, they'll throw their body in front and take the bullet. Well, that's also a good picture of what self-control is. It stops the invasion of the enemy. When the enemy comes in to destroy that which God is building in your life, there needs to be something in your life that stops it. Something that halts its forward progression. So how does this authority and punch work? I want to go into the sacred formation of the inner clout. You are supposed to have strength inside of you. Strength to be able to tell the temptations, to be able to tell the, the imposed weaknesses, to be able to tell all those different things that are coming and strategizing to undermine your soul where to go. You need to have strength. You need to have a barrier in your soul, a garrison, watchful over your soul. You need to have authority in your soul to command those things to back off, and you also need to have a big, meaty fist that when they come, you're able to clobber them in the nose and knock them out. So how does this work? So the sacred formation of the inner clout. I'm going to introduce you to three words. Grace, which we taught on, was it Friday. We went through grace, so this isn't going to be a shocker to any of the students here. 
But this is going to be a very, very simplified version of the message of grace. Grace is not the hug of God in our sinful state, where he overlooks all of our problems and merely just gives us a hug. Grace takes us in our sinful state and rescues us. It doesn't just hug us. It lifts us out of the slime, washes us off, sets our feet on rock, and enables our life to now work properly from this day forward. Grace is power, enabling power. So we can call it the labor of God on man's behalf. You can't do the work. You can't fight that behemoth. You need something in you to be able to take down that which the enemy is doing against you because you keep losing. Most of us are pretty ready to admit that, yeah, I'm not doing a very good job of tackling this sin. Uh, yeah, anytime I get in the ring with it, I lose. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the testimony of every single one of us if we're actually going to be honest or if we've lived long enough to admit it. That's how it works. That's what the Bible declares. You can't. And he says, uh, <clears throat> I can. Grace is the great I can of God. I can do it. And so when we are able to acknowledge I can't, then suddenly the I can begins to work in our life. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. So this is Paul speaking. But I, Paul, labored more abundantly than they all. So here we have Paul labored, but how is he laboring? In his own strength, willpower, determination? Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. This is how Paul did what he did. There was something inside of him known as grace. Grace could also be a synonym for the Holy Spirit, the life of God imparted. That's what grace is. It's not a hug. It's not just the mercy or the kindness of God. Those have their own words. They're called mercy and kindness. Grace is enabling power, enabling strength, the labor of God on our behalf to accomplish what we can't accomplish. It says, for by grace are you saved. So how are you saved? Well, by grace. Now, there's another half to this sentence. Don't worry, I'll put it in, because that's the next word we're introducing you to. For by grace are you saved. What rescues you? Your own work? Your own good intentions? Your own prayers? Your own Bible study? Your attendance at Ellerslie? No. You're saved by grace. You're saved by his work. He did it 2,000 years ago, and he's still working on your behalf today. That's what saves us. Grace is not just evidenced at the cross, but has been made eternally available through the cross. This grace is ever-present, always available, always accessible, amazingly sufficient for every good work, potently efficacious and divinely effective in procuring, that means gaining, its ends. Here's our next word, faith. Now, these are just classic Christian words that we could easily blur over on. But I want you to realize Without these things operative in your life, you remain the weakling. You remain defeated. And you have, you're a pushover to anything the enemy wants to do in your life. But there is something that Christ did on that cross. And he purchased for you everything you need to be strong in this soul. So faith. We've got the trusting gaze of man upon his God. I believe my God. I believe he can do it. And I believe he will do it. It's a trusting gaze. You look up at God and say, I believe it. You look at his word, which is the revelation from God, and you say, I believe it. He cannot lie, and he's promised. He will do it. That's faith. Faith is very simple. There's a key line here. For by grace 
are you saved? That's the scripture we just read. Through faith. So here's how it works. You, with the trusting gaze of your soul, look heavenward and you say, God, you have done it. You can do it in and through me. So you're the little peewee in the corner of the ring and you've been trembling all these years. And suddenly, you behold the living God and he declares that your opponent, this great behemoth, has been defeated. And you look up and you say, but he looks so big. He looks so strong and he's always beaten me. I beat him. And he says, look to me and be ye saved. You see, you look to God and you say, God, I believe it. I believe that you not only beat that behemoth, but you will come in and through me and prove his defeat. And that's the work of grace. Your faith takes hold of that which God has promised, and then God sends forth his grace, his work, his strength, his labor, and suddenly your little peewee fist grows a hundredfold into a big, huge, meaty one. And you look over at that behemoth, and the behemoth, for the first time, shudders. And you say, in the name of Jesus. And you walk towards him. The behemoth steps back a little. He doesn't want to give you too much credit, because he, he wants to... He wants to see if you really mean it. But as you take steps forward, he begins to tremble because he realizes that you have grabbed a hold of something, and that is the work of the cross. And he knows that that is his end. But you must, in faith, take it and by grace enable the living God to work through you to take this meaty fist in your soul and to plant it in the nose of your opponent who is not, by the way, flesh and blood, people on this earth. It is the enemy. The enemy has already been judged. The people of this earth haven't. The people on this earth have an opportunity to turn. But the devil has been judged. And we come in with that big meaty fist of grace, and we plant it in the enemy's nose. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is the channel through which grace flows into the life of man and thusly into this earth. Faith is the response of the soul to beholding the truth, reality, and fact of God's being. First, a man knows and thusly reckons it and then yields and presents his life unto God and then exerts his soul willfully in absolute and unquestioning obedience to the commands of his new Lord and Master. What you see, and when you guys go through the message, the work of the believer this semester, you'll see there's five dimensions to belief. You must know it in your head. Most of us, that's all belief is. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus died 2,000 years ago. Well, that actually isn't what belief is. Belief is a multidimensional aspect of the soul. Know it, then you must take it. It's sort of like me knowing there's a $20 bill down here and it's mine. It's like, yeah, that belongs to you, Eric. And I can say, ah, yeah, I know it. And then I could leave today and someone could say, yeah, did you pick up the 20? No. Uh, did, did, were you given a 20? Yeah. Are you saved by the fact, or do you have the 20? By the fact that you know there was a 20 there? No, you gain the 20 by reckoning it, by taking it. You must take it. And that's what's reckoning. And then yield and present. If God truly is the Lord, the master, the king of kings, what do you do? You give him what is rightfully his, which is your body. He purchased it on the cross. And then you exert the soul in willful obedience. You say, I belong to Jesus Christ. And then you exert the faith that you now have, the authority that you now have in Christ Jesus towards obedience. All of these are attributes of the believing life. This is what a believer does. 
Love. So we had grace, faith, and love. These are like cornerstones of what Christianity is. However, the words have been obscured and dimmed to the point where we talk about them, but we don't actually engage in their concept or in, their, in what they do, their operation. So the word in Scripture, because there's a lot of words for love. Uh, and even in new translations, there's a lot of words for love. And there's different kinds of love. I'm not just talking about any kind of love. I'm com- talking about agape, uh, agape, technically, I think is how it would be pronounced. Agape. And it's, it's not just the brotherly love. It's not the love in a man and a wife, the passion in marriage. No, this is different. This is God himself. God is agape. Okay, so if you could remove the word love from your mind for a second, because love has been so diminished in our generation, sort of like self-control and patience, where we have this funny, simplistic, overly simplistic concept of it, which is sort of plasticky. It's lost the robustness that Scripture lends it. So agape, the behavior and attitude of God expressing itself in man. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything. So that's an external work. Neither this external work means anything, nor uncircumcision. But what means something, or what avails something, is faith which works by agape. This is the function of the human life that actually changes the world. Not just our individual life, but it changes a marriage, it changes a family, it changes a church, and it changes the world around us. It's faith which worketh by agape. So, Faith, if it's going to be functional, it's going to be working with this agape. So let's figure out what agape is. Uh, The action of faith causes grace to overtake, empower, and renovate the believing life, turning the body of man into the workshop of God. The result is an alteration of behavior and attitude. The result is that God's divine behavior begins to manifest and demonstrate itself in and through the consecrated saint of God. You've given yourself over to God through faith. And now grace is working in you. But what is the work of grace? What is grace accomplishing in you? What is it building? It's building the life of Christ. Well, what is the life of Christ? Agape. That is what it works. So you see and behold the living God by faith. And then that is a channel through which the grace of God now is able to work in and through you. And what does the grace of God work? Love. Agape. The very nature of God is made made manifest in you as the believer. So the result is that God's divine behavior begins to manifest and demonstrate itself in and through the consecrated saint of God. Agape, the chief end. So agape is the the glory of God. Now that's an interesting statement. Uh, Agape is the glory of God. It is the full manifestation of who he is. He is agape. And so when you see God for who he is, you would say he is agape. That is the full manifestation, the full revelation of who he is. He's love. So agape is the glory of God, the full weighty expression of his person, his beauty, his holiness, his majesty, his purity, his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his wrath, and his power. Agape is God, and God is agape. Agape is God behavior, God thoughts, God actions, God nature, God character, God ethics, God compassion, and God's manner with sin. And it is this agape that reveals God. Agape is the great work of grace and the great end of faith. So now there's our words. We had grace and we had faith. Agape 
is the great work of grace. So if grace is going to be functioning in your soul, what's it going to work? Agape. And it's the great end of faith. When you believe on God, what is going to happen to you? You're going to be changed by the grace of God, which is going to then reveal itself in love, in agape. Second Peter. Now this is a very interesting scripture. Of course, you're going to really thank me for what I've done to you here. I've taken the typical words that would be used here in a translation, I've turned them into their Greek counterparts so that you would listen, even though you're probably not going to know what I'm talking about. Where, and, but I'll explain this, don't worry. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, of the agape. I mean, that's the divine nature, it's agape, it's love. So we've been given these promises that we might be partakers of this agape, this divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, and besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. So there's our faith. We're supposed to add to our faith something called arite. And to arite, gnosis. And to gnosis, egretea. And to egretea, hupomone. And to hupomone, eusebia. And to eusebia, philadelphia. And to philadelphia, agape. Agape. See, I'm, I have sort of a Spanish accent that goes with my uh, Greek. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What did it start with? Faith. What did it end with? Agape. Okay, that's not accidental here. The chief fruit is love. The chief end is love. But how is it gained? How are you saved? By grace through faith. And then what is the result? There is a work that is done in your life. Faith without works is dead. Well, what is the work? It's love. You could have, you could do all these wonderful things. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? You could speak in the tongues of men and, speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if you have not love, you could prophesy, you could you know, have faith to move mountains, you could give all you possess to the poor, surrender your body to the flames to be burned. Remember that? But if you have not agape, it is nothing. What? That's because that's the chief work. If you are being saved by grace through faith, then what comes out? Agape. Add to your faith. Agape. But he that lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Well, what's he talking about? Adding to your faith this, 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 and agape. Okay, now, you're like, what? what was on the list? These are typically called the graces, which is a very interesting term for them. These are the graces. This is the work of grace within our life. What you see, now you have to work from the bottom up. The green means start, the red means finish. Okay, sorry about that. It probably should have been turned upside down. But uh, since we're building, we're adding to, it seemed to me that we need to add the bricks going upward. It seemed really strange to stick the first brick on the ceiling and then build down. So what we have is faith, and we're supposed to add to that arite. Gnosis, akratia, hupomone, eusebia, philadelphia, and agape. Now, in the middle there, the reason I'm giving you this context is to understand where self-control comes in. Self-control is not the chief fruit. It is not what God in the Bible describes as the chief end of man. It's ekratia. That's self-control. Okay? But you are supposed to, to be the perfect man, 
to be, to make sure your calling is sure. You must have this built into the package. This is a work of grace and an expression of love. This is part of what this love is. It's like agape is a puzzle and it has multiple pieces in it. And self-control is one of them. With all diligence, add to your faith. So, remember our words, see, arite? Now I'm going to go through each one of them very quickly. And I'm going to give you uh, the translation over here. It's in the parenthetical part over here where it says virtue. You're going to add to your faith virtue. Now, let's be honest. That doesn't make any sense to any of us. That You're going to add to your faith virtue. Well, how do you do that? It's a work of grace. The same way you're going to add self-control is the same way you're going to add virtue. Okay, so let me... For each one of these, I say the new man. So to your faith, you're going to add virtue, which I'm calling the new man. It's the growl for purity, love, and honor. The vigorous exertion towards moral excellence within the soul. A throwing off of an old behavior and the putting on of a new one. A swallowing up in the efficacious merits of the shed blood of Jesus. A newfound thunder and strength within the soul. Campaigning on behalf of the new king's way of doing things in the body. And then we have gnosis, which means knowledge. I call this the new map. Now, if you're going through discipleship at Elegy, you know how significant these things are. In other words, you must add these things as baseline factors. Do you have a map for where you're going? You need the word of God. That's where our knowledge comes from. It's not just that you need to be filled with some knowledge to go to the internet and start Googling things. It's the new map, a very real grasp of truth, a ready agreement with God's fact, a clear grip on God's thoughts, a hold on God's ways, and an understanding of God's manner. Discernment of what is right, true, accurate, and in alignment with God. All true knowledge comes from the word of God, revealing the mind of Christ, the fact of God's great plan. Here's our word. This is our word for the day, and you're going to just see it in the context. Ekratia, the new strength, or what I'm calling the inner clout. Self-control. Which is the strength of God made manifest in the saints in order to garrison the body. Shield it from every fiery dart of the enemy. It's a God-enabled governing of every operation of the body, a divinely empowered control over appetite, sleep, and sexuality. It's letting not sin reign any longer in the body. Hupomone, the new endurance, which translated as perseverance or patience, okay? which is soul unshakability, the immovable, unbreakable, persistent, unswerving strength of a man established and constructed by the grace of God, never growing tired in his faith, never growing weak in his resolve, enduring until the very end. Eusebia, the new behavior, which is translated as godliness. It's heavenly honor, empowered and made possible by the spirit life within. It's thinking God thoughts, speaking God words, behaving with God behavior. It's a life that beholds the thrice holy God. A life lived in constant worship, bearing the attitude and the mind of those dwelling in the throne room. We would call that at Ellerslie honor. Philadelphia, the new affection, which is typically translated as brotherly love. Washing the feet of the saints, seeking the benefit of those who believe, laboring to see the body of Christ built strong, carrying those sick with the palsy to the feet of Jesus, honoring others above yourself, seeking the profit of the saints, even if it means you go without. It means deep abiding affection for those considered brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Every single thing we're looking through, even though I'm saying we're going to focus on self-control, every single one of these things are attributes that God is intending us to have worked into our life. They're called the new man, the new map. It's the new life. It's love. It's agape that is beginning to show forth itself. Brotherly kindness is merely an attribute of God, his agape. He is love. 
And one attribute is this, the affection for the saints. Okay? This is just an attribute. And then here's the crowning jewel. Agape, the new creature. Love. It's God's very nature revealed. Not just his behavior, but his unsullied attitude in all circumstances. It's the perfect excellence of Christ's behavioral action combined with the perfect excellence of Christ's extraordinary affection. It is the great end of the Spirit work within us to conform us into the image of our Christ, to make us expressions of his agape. For agape is what he is. This is his very person. And when this agape is evidence in the saints of God, it is the single greatest demonstration of the glory of Almighty God on earth. This is what a Christian is to be known by. You will know my disciples by their agape. No small weight. If we're not showing this, well, we're showing, all we're demonstrating is we're not his disciples. Faith without works is dead. You could do all these wonderful things, but if you do not have agape, it's nothing. So this is what God is doing inside of us. So now let's go in with more of a laser-like precision and deal with one attribute of this. Because for me to just give you a, a sermon on agape and say, go out and agape, well, how do you do that? Well, first of all, you must believe your God. You must know that he cannot lie. And you must know that when he speaks, and when he, when he has revealed himself in his word, he didn't stutter. And he will not change his mind on what he's spoken. And you can put your entire confidence in it. It's called faith. God has revealed it. He said it. I believe it. It's that simple. I believe it. People could call you a kook. They could say you're lacking intelligence. So be it. I believe my God. He said it. He meant it. I believe it. Faith. You do not turn your eyes towards the evidence of the natural realm, the pleas of the attorney of the flesh, and all their arguments against the living God. You turn your eyes to God, and you simply believe him with childlike faith. And then you yield to the incoming grace of God. You must be rescued. You must be saved. By what? By him. By his grace. How are you saved? By grace through faith. And so when that grace begins to move in, which is just the life of Jesus, it's him. It's who it is. It's Christ. He did the work on your behalf 2,000 years ago, so now he can do the work in you today. So the cross matters. What happened on that cross is everything. And then, because of that cross and your simple faith in him, he is now able to come in a modern-day sense into your very being and live his life in and through you. And that's grace. And what does it produce? Agape. So now let's get specific. Ekratia, the new strength, the inner clout. We're going to call it a work of grace, not a work of self. Remember self-control? Well, that's me trying not to do things. No, that's not what self-control is. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a work of Jesus in you. It's a work of grace. It is a result of real faith. And it is an evidence of love. So it is an evidence that your life is actually being changed. It is one of the fruits that is born to say, whoa, we got a new life here. We have a new life here. There is a gratia showing in this soul. That big meaty fist of authority that needs to clout the enemy in the nose, uh -huh. that's an evidence of you being changed by the love of Jesus. And now you're demonstrating the love of Jesus. Isn't that strange that a big meaty fist in the nose of the enemy is a demonstration of love? Yeah, we need to define love the way God defines love. 
Now, it's not a big meaty fist in the nose of each other. It's a big meaty fist in the nose of the enemy, okay? There's a big difference between the two. I know some of you would like to take that big meaty fist that God has given you and turn it to the side and go, in the, you know, the nose of someone near and dear. I don't know why we long for that sometimes, but it does pop out, and that's where self-control comes in. So when that longing comes out, there's an alarm that goes off and goes, eh, eh, eh. And as you're beginning to put on that fist and you're beginning to turn, eh, eh, you go, you know what? This is incorrect. That's actually self-control as well, and I'll explain that. Aggressively exerting the claim of God upon the soul. Jesus Christ has purchased you. He has purchased every aspect of you. There is, if we're going to look at the boxer's ring, he's purchased the ring. It belongs to him. What takes place in that ring now must bring glory to him. How embarrassing is it to be walking out as your little peewee self and you're saying, yeah, this is, I'm a Christian boxer now. And this is a Christian ring. Bought by the blood of Jesus. This is like a guy dancing, you know, with his mitts on. Okay, I know it looks ridiculous, but that's because he's a peewee. He's, he's ridiculous. Okay, and he's dancing out there, and then the, you know, the big behemoth comes over and goes, give me a break, and knocks him flat, all under the banner of a Christian ring and a Christian fighter. That's humiliating. Who's getting the glory in a situation like that? The behemoth and the behemoth's cronies. Darkness is getting glory. We have a ring that has been purchased by Almighty God. And what takes place in this ring is for the glory of our great King. What takes place in this ring is victory for Jesus. He won on the cross, now let's prove it in our ring. And that's what egretia is. It is proving the work of the cross. So we say aggressively exerting the claim of God upon the soul. This ring belongs to Jesus. And he wins every fight in it. You hear that, behemoth? The behemoth shrinks a foot the moment he first hears it. And you say it again because you like the effects. He gets smaller and smaller. Pretty soon, he's out of the ring altogether. Pretty soon, you're marching around the ring doing exercises every day, keeping a sharp watch on this ring, making sure that no one ever gets back into this ring. Nothing that would sully this ring that would attempt to defy the new authority of this ring is allowed in here. See? A little more muscular of a stance now. See that? It's not the peewee version. We've got the big meaty fist version. It's called self-control. I know it's a strange word for it, and maybe it's not the best word for it. Temperance, on the other hand, is not that good of a word either. Okay? We're just lacking a good translation for what this is. So this is exerting the authority over your ring. And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land, all the ring, which he swore to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about, according to all that he swore unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. You know that big behemoth? No, it's not standing anymore before them in this ring. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. It's the same thing with your inner ring, your inner territory, your inner land of promise, if you will. You take it for Jesus Christ, and there is nothing that he has spoken in his word that will not come to pass. That's a guarantee. Your God has spoken, and he cannot lie. Setting up the garrison. 
So here's our word egratia again. This is the inner clout. This is patience. I'm sorry, uh, uh, self-control. I'm calling it the new strength. The new strength that is entering into this life that you've never had before. So let's just review this again. The strength of God made manifest in the saints in order to garrison the body, to preserve it, to protect it, to shield it from every fiery dart of the enemy. It is, God's, it is a God-enabled governing of every operation of the body, a divinely empowered control over appetite, sleep, and sexuality. It's letting not sin reign any longer in the body, or in, if we're going to keep our analogy going, in the ring. No, this is no longer allowed. You keep the victory stance for Jesus going. You know how uh, the, the boxers are always running around keeping their muscles loose, and so that's the way we need to be. We're keeping our muscles loose, and we're like this. Victory! Yeah! Ah, nothing in this soul. Nothing in this ring. Uh-huh. Some of the girls are like, I do not want to do that. <laughs> Some of the guys are like, hey, I'm with them, okay? Do we need to look like that? You can sure look better. I'm not a boxer, okay? So I don't know exactly what it's supposed to look like. Miserable living in unconquered Canaan. Why is self-control important? You see, if you go into this land and you choose not to drive out that which God has defeated, what happens? You end up with a mixture, and a mixture of any kind is defeat. So miserable living in unconquered Canaan. So we have Numbers 33. God makes it very clear. He says, you need to drive them all out. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Welcome to modern Christianity. We have pricks in our eyes, thorns in our sides, and they are vexing us in our own land which was purchased by Jesus Christ. Should get us a little upset. I don't know how you would feel about a prick in your eye, but I have a hunch that wouldn't feel very good. Uh huh. Just like a prick in your soul isn't feeling very good. Your continued abase or debasement of your soul in and through that sick, cyclical pattern of sin. You sick and tired of it yet? I don't blame you. That isn't the way God has built you to be. He has set you free by his blood, his work on the cross, and you must take the authority of that victory. You must accept it. You must allow it to course in and through your ring, if you will, and establish a new authority here. Else, if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations. So imagine you have a clean ring, but you don't have self-control. Imagine if you don't set up a garrison. And imagine if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these old things that have held you down. Even these that remain among you, you shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they to you. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Because there is no sacrifice outside of that blood. If you begin to let these ridiculous behaviors back into your life, and you try and turn to self to solve it, you no longer have any efficacy, any strength to do anything. You have the blood of Jesus. The great thing in the new covenant is if we allow something back into our ring, we come straight to Jesus Christ. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. If we do sin, we have an advocate in him. 
So we need to realize that though we are meant to be guarded, if something gets in, if you're finding today that something has crept back into your ring and there you are laying with a bloody nose on the mat and the ref is counting over you again, get back up. Get back up but in a new authority. Not in your own willpower, strength, and determination, but get back up and say, no longer am I fighting with my own gloves. We're fighting with Jesus' fists now. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Wash me clean. Forgive me of this selfishness, of this behavior. Forgive me and wash me clean and take care of this thing right now. This does not belong in here. In the name of Jesus, get out. The hope of a completely conquered Canaan. Order my steps in thy word, says David, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Now, these are very important words. For those of you that know what it says in Romans 6, the word is, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. And these are the words in the Old Testament. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. It's like David is coming to God and saying, please let not sin have dominion. But there's a change in the New Testament. You know what the change is? That authority enters in. David was crying out to God to let not that sin have dominion over him. And you'll see it again in Psalm 19. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. But what has happened? What did the cross accomplish? The cross has offered us something known as grace. The Spirit of God imparted so that within us we have the clout. Within our very souls, we have the garrison. We're not pleading for the external wall. We have God within us. And so what does Paul say? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. You have what you need, saints. And gratia, you have it. You have the authority and you have the punch. But you must use it. What good does a sword do if you lay it on the ground and you never pick it up for battle? And then you complain about the fact that, boy, I sure do feel weak in battle. Uh, hey, buddy, there's a sword there. It's been given you at the cross. What, what good is it if arrows are flying at you and you're trying to bat it away with the sword? You're like, oh, boy, this sword isn't a very good shield. That's because it's not meant to be your shield. You have a shield called faith. You're supposed to pick it up. The weaponry and the armament of God Almighty is meant to be utilized, not poetically appreciated, sung songs about. We're supposed to wield this weaponry against all the wiles of the devil. 1 Corinthians 9. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. Now you're going to recognize this because this is the first scripture we read. This is just... Uh, the King James Version of it. So run that you may obtain, and every man that strives for the mastery, or for the prize, is self-controlled in all things. It's just a different uh, verb tense of it. Egrotume, in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under my body. That's actually the way Paul says it in the King James, which is very confusing. I keep under my body. What a strange statement. What it means is I keep my body in control, under. My body will not control me. I control my body. Your sexual appetites have always controlled you. But guess what? You now have grace. You have authority over your body. 
So you can command your body, just most of us didn't know we could do this. We can command our body and keep it under. No, I will not submit to that. No, you will not come into this ring. No, this is not allowed in the house of God. You are in a position of authority, under his authority. You've submitted to him, and now he has equipped you with his authority to command your body into obedience. Your sexuality no longer controls your body. This hand no longer just does whatever it wants. You tell it what to do. You are going to put your hand on that person's shoulder and squeeze and let them know with these lips you love them. Never done that before. Do it. All right. I love you. Doesn't always have to look that weird. Uh, But I keep my body under and bring it into subjection, under control. Lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The anatomy of self-control, agritia. First, I, or self, this is funny, the word self-control has self in it, which is a very confusing thing. But I, self, must be controlled, submitted, subjected to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the rule of the Spirit of God and the authority of the word of Scripture. So here's... Here's the beginnings of self-control. Here's how it starts. You're seated on a throne in control of your life. Self is in control. Eh, Incorrect. It's called the principle of sin. The judgment for this or the wages of this is death. So Jesus Christ has set you free from your control. And as a result, he has made a way for you to get off of that throne and to yield it. It's called denial of self. And when you yield that throne to its rightful possessor, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, then suddenly you submit and kneel down before it and say, I submit to you in this body. This body belongs to you. You are now in control of this life. Self is controlled. So the very first step of self-control is self-controlled. Follow me? Self is first controlled, then As Paul says, it is no longer I who lives or I who rules. It is no longer I who lives or controls the body, but Christ who lives within the body. Thusly, I, self, is now in its proper position, crucified, yet strangely alive. You see, when you deny self or when you are diminished in this body, Self, you're still there. It's sort of hard to explain how it works. It's not like you're floating around somewhere just, you know, with wings, watching your life from outside of it. You're still there. So I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So it says, but Christ lives within his body. Thusly, I is now in, the prop- in its proper position. It's crucified, yet alive. Denied and yet fully yielded to behave as it ought to behave. It is now able to exert the authority of Jesus over the body, its impulses, its weaknesses, and its fleshly longings. So here's the end statement. Self is now controlled by Jesus in order to now control the body as it ought. So you were part right in saying self-control. But for self-control to work, for self to control the body, it must be submitted to Jesus Christ. So you are a player in self-control. But self is first controlled. The Spirit of God is able to empower the Christian, and that's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. And outward, there is a flow that says, body, down. Temptation, no. 
called self-control. And it's a fruit that Christ is on the throne, that your body is now operated by the Spirit of God. The sentinel, the bodyguard, the inner clout. Okay, I'm getting, giving you a lot of names for this, trying to find the perfect one. Egrotia. I'm going to give you three things that this egrotia does within you. This is what the Spirit of God does within you. The first one is it's an alarm system within you. The word in the older translations is temperance, as I've said. Now, temperance doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but what it, what it means, you, you'll see the word temperate in there. If your soul gets too hot or too cold towards something, like say it's getting too hot towards a temptation, gets too cold towards God, you know what happens? Temperance goes, eh, eh, eh. It's an alarm system where you're sensitized to the fact of an invader or to the fact that you're growing cold in your spiritual life. You know what? That's actually a work of the Spirit of God within you. It's an evidence that God is alive in you. If you find yourself being awakened and like, oh, what? I feel like I'm growing cold. Praise God for that. Because you have no ability to discern that outside the Spirit of God. But you are being awakened. That inner alarm is precious to us as Christians. Yeah, it's not fun to find out that you're growing cold or that you're growing too hot towards the world and the world's uh, appeal. Yeah, it's not necessarily a, something you want to jump up and down and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm growing cold towards God. But you can jump up and down with joy that you are sensitized to know you are growing cold towards God. And you can turn. Okay, so the inner alarm, it's a constant examination of motive, inspection of behavior, and evaluation of the spiritual thermostat in the soul. Two, the ready response. Self-control, the concept of it, egratia, is a constant watchfulness. Vigilance is one of the terms in scripture. So you are monitoring your ring, if you will, looking for those that would oppose, because you know that there is a roaring lion who is prowling about seeking whom he may devour. You know your enemy, and you know that he's up to no good, and so guess what? You're up, and you're walking. You're strolling. You're a watchman. You're a bodyguard over this soul, and the enemy is not going to get any access. It's a ready response. You are ready for battle at any point in time. You must be sober-minded always is the term that Paul uses. He says, we do not sleep as do others. It's a little intimidating, isn't it? That's because we're always watchful over our souls. If you are in a time of battle, you don't stick your gun down in some shed 100 yards away. Oh, here, we'll store it there for the night, and I'm going to go and get a good night's sleep. You're in hostile territory, buddy. Keep your weapons by your cot, in your bed if necessary. You just don't want to shoot your foot. You have access to your weaponry instantly. You are constantly on guard. You're vigilant. And then here's three. I like this one. This is the clout part. You know, we have the clout that's the authority, and then we have the clout that's the punch in the nose. For some reason, I'm strangely attracted to the punch in the nose when I think about it. Uh, the decisive blow. It is the exertion of presidential authority. It's a license to kill. So that's where, remember that title I was going to give? You have anything that would dare invade this soul at the spiritual level. You have a license, an authority from the king of kings himself. Sort of, and I'm not a big James Bond guy, but you know, he had the license to kill. He's a double O. You know, you sort of have a double O next to your name spiritually. And you have authority in this body to bring that down. No, you can't stand here. Okay? So you have an exertion of presidential or kingly authority. It's a license to kill, a governmental mandate to spiritually take out that which threatens the Christ life forming in the soul self control. 
It is strong. It is mighty. It is the strength of God wielded on behalf of the purity of the inner man, the inner thought life. There is nothing that encroaches upon this territory. Nothing. You have to have a growl. You have to be ready. You have to be a sentinel. You have to be a bodyguard. Testing your personal agritia. Are you ready to defend the body of Christ? So this is one of those pop quizzes I give them every now and then. A pop quiz you're not supposed to be able to prepare for. You're just caught where you're at. And we want to measure our souls where we're at today. Okay? And so we're going to measure, and I have just a series of questions that we're going to go through, and I want us to measure where we're at. And I want us to be honest. If we're growing cold, let's let the alarm go off. Okay? If we are, some of us know that these things shouldn't enter our ring. We're very sensitized to them. In fact, we might be watching our ring, but we're not exerting the authority of God to hit them in the face when they attempt to come in. What good is it to stay watchful if you let them in when they knock? You have to know your position in Christ Jesus. They have no right here. They have no position in your body. You tell them that. It says you submit yourselves unto God. When God wants to bring something into your life, you submit. But when the enemy wants to bring something in, it says resist the devil and he will flee. Take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. Whatever's attempting to come in, you're on guard. Whatever wants to come into your marriage, you're on guard. Whatever wants to come into your family, whatever wants to come into the church of Jesus Christ, we have engratia. We have a sentinel watch about us. So are we ready to defend the body of Christ? Because did you know that you're the body of Christ? You know that together we're the body of Christ? If you're stinking it up in your own soul, guess what? You're not ready to lead any more than you. If you don't have self-control in your individual life, you're not ready for married life. It's just a basic tenet. That doesn't mean if we're married, we should get unmarried. It means we come to God and we say, God, help me. I got this thing upside down here. I don't even know how to guard my own soul, let alone my marriage. God will teach us. How is a gratia measured? By how quick you notice the invader is your spiritual alarm working. You see, when that invader comes in, you're going to hear an alarm. How quickly do you hear it? And how quickly are you responding? Two, and by how quick you exert your position in Christ and make right what the enemy is attempting to make wrong. Are you strong to respond quickly and decisively? Okay, so when you hear that alarm, what do you do? First of all, are you hearing it? Then, how quickly are you responding? Because there's very inconvenient times when our alarm begins to go off. It's like, oh, I'm really engaged in this other matter here. Have you ever noticed that if you raise kids, your kids need discipline at the most inopportune times? But if you're going to be a good parent, you have to discipline when they need the discipline. And I tell you what, that is a very awkward thing at times. But that's the way it goes. Okay? It's the same with your soul. It doesn't matter if it's inconvenient. You have to be ready to put a guard up. So when you hear that alarm go off, how quickly do you respond? And then, how quickly do you exert the authority and make the decisive blow against what is attempting to enter? Because sometimes, you know what we want? We know it's coming in, we notice it, but we want to turn it over once in our mind, and then we'll let it out the back door. You know, when no one's looking in the church. We're like, you don't belong here. Get out. Close the door. It's like, but it had a little time to fester in there and we got some enjoyment out of it by the way that's not how sin works you don't get it out the back door if you let it in the front door it sits down on the couch you're like hey you need to get out of here i thought i told you to leave burp takes a bag of potato chips starts eating them 
You do not let it in the front door. The only way to get that out is by the authority of Jesus Christ. You don't whisper to it, hey, buddy, I don't want Jesus to see you. Get out. He'll eat you for lunch. The measurement of humility. So the first test, the way this test came, uh, I was studying in a missionary school, and I remember one of the teachers said this. He said, the measurement of humility is when you realize that you've done something wrong, how quickly you acknowledge that you've done something wrong and make it right. That's the measurement of humility. You know what we like to do? We make, you know, we do that offensive thing. We say the wrong word, and then we know that it's wrong, okay? And, and the alarm's going off. That's, that's uh, ingratia. But it's awkward to immediately have to say, you know what, that was wrong. Will you forgive me? You see, we have a pride that's engaged in this. And so what do we do? We let a little time pass. You know, and there's a certain period of time where after it's passed, you can say, you know what that thing, you know, a couple weeks ago that I did? Yeah, that was dumb. I'm really sorry I did it. Yeah, it doesn't feel as bad if you wait two weeks. Well, you have a very low level of guardedness over your soul as a result. You're vulnerable. And your humility rating, eh, stinks. Okay? So the med- now, I'm glad you made it right. Don't get me wrong. I'm glad you did. But you know what we need to be doing? The moment we realize we're doing something, the moment we have the eh go off in our soul, you know what we do? We turn off the alarm. We say, thank you, alarm. You know what? Sorry to stop you here in this conversation. What I just said was wrong. My attitude is wrong. I'm proud right now, and I'm trying to defend myself. This is wrong, okay? I just want to humble myself before you and just say, I love you. I want this conversation from this point forward to go uh, forward in a healthy way. And I'm going to submit myself unto God. That was wrong, okay? I'm going to listen now instead of just trying to talk over you. Let's proceed. And all of us are like, oh, I don't like that model. (laughs) That's because self doesn't like that model. God loves that model. It's an immediate response to the alarm. How well do you handle personal error? That's the concept of when you personally stumble, when you personally offend someone. Humility is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial recognition of your personal error, the alarm sounding, and then the actual confessing with your mouth that you have erred and the seeking of forgiveness for the fault. The purest form of humility does not allow the alarm to sound twice. Could you imagine the alarm goes, eh, eh, and so when it goes, eh, you go, I'm sorry. That is the measurement, eh, eh. See, if it keeps going, it gets softer and softer. You ever notice that? Pretty soon it's like, <laughs> Now we'll consider doing something, because that was really irritating. The measurement of courage. How well do you respond to the suggestion of fear? When fear comes a knocking, when fear is moving in, when fear is attempting to capitalize upon your situation, how quickly do you respond? See, courage is being able to stand up to whatever the enemy is bringing, bold-faced in the authority of Jesus Christ and saying, I will not listen to you. Courage is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the truth is made manifest, made made, uh, is made manifest to your understanding, or the alarm sounds and the command for obedience has been issued and discerned, and then the actual faith-filled, resolute, truth-empowered response arises to willingly and joyfully accept the challenge. The purest form of courage does not allow the alarm to sound twice, no matter if it is a call to great pain, torture, and death. 
If it be for the glory of our king, the alarm must not need sound twice. Now, I don't know if I've talked with this class about it, but I've walked through these things and measured myself against these things many times. When I think about those situations where you're in the house church and the underground church and the, uh, the government officials come storming in and they basically say, to this side of the room, those that want to stand with Christ will kill you. Uh, and those of you that want to leave will let you go. You leave right now. Run and never come back. But those that want to stand with Christ over here, how many times is your alarm going to go off? You know what you should be doing. That's what's funny. You know what Jesus deserves. But how long do you allow that alarm to go off before you stop it, stand up, and walk to the right? Well, that's the measurement of our courage. Yes, it's, it's okay to acknowledge that most of us are suffering from a great deal of cowardice. We're not built. We're Americans, most of us. We're built for cowardice. The only thing we're strong in is things like sports and you know, things that are going to test us in areas of our strength that have nothing to do with spiritual life. But we're cowards when it comes to things of spiritual matters. The measurement of purity. How well do you respond to temptation? Purity is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the temptation strikes the human soul to the moment when the soul issues forth its command to destroy that intruder. Never should the purity alarm need to beep twice. The soldier of the cross expresses his great faith and love by maintaining a constant vigilant watch over his soul. Enemy messages are never entertained, never read, never pondered, and certainly not allowed to remain in and amongst the congregation of the saints of God. Hit these thoughts, these intruders, these tempters with the aggressive resolve of the twice-born to remain untouched by this world. Whether it be visual temptation, emotional temptation, or physical temptation, the answer is always the same. No. When you're driving down the road as men and you see that billboard off to the side, you do not allow the alarm to beep twice. Eh. No. You do not turn it over in your mind. I don't care what the bait is. I don't care how. Well planned it's been by the enemy. The same answer in your soul. You must have self-control. You must have the inner alarm and you must have the authority and the decisive blow to the teeth. You're a Christian. Behave like one. The measurement of industry. Industry is continued diligence. Diligence is hard work. Okay, Where you give yourself and you work well. Very little diligence in our generation. Industry is continued a lifestyle of diligence, okay? So the measurement of industry. How well do you respond to tiredness and physical weakness? Industry is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the physical, emotional, and spiritual and or psychological tiredness strikes and the moment that the grace of God is beckoned forth to ensure soundness of body, mind, soul, and spirit. If the spirit is working and in need of your watchfulness and energetic givenness, then the alarm should not need sound twice. Rise up in the strength of Jesus, O valiant soul. Stay focused, stay sharp, stay sober-minded, and stay watchful. Ply your energies until the moment that God gives the word to cease from your labors. This is classic in the middle of the night. God needs his men and his women, so he wakes you up. And he says, could you watch with me? Could you pray? The alarm goes off. I tell you what. Many of us will allow that alarm to go until we finally can fall asleep and forget it. But you know what God's looking for? Men and women that immediately turn off the alarm and say, thank you for waking me up. I would love to uh, do your bidding. What do you need, Lord Jesus? That's easier said than done. Any of us that have 
been tested in the middle of the night with God for prayer. We know. This can sound all wonderful when we're standing here in church. It's a whole other thing when you're asleep and you're woken up and you're dead tired. And God says, I need my man right now. Yeah. The measurement of attentiveness. How well do you respond to distraction? Does distraction work on you? The enemy's a, a master smoke and mirrors guy. He loves to create noise off to the side. How well do you respond? Because if he can create a noise, you know, one of the number one ways to get into your ring is to get you distracted over on this side of the ring. Like, what was that? Hey, hark, who goes there? Meanwhile, some other guy slips through the ropes onto this side. You turn around and are belted in the face. Are you easily distracted? Attentiveness is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the side swiping, distracting thought niggles at your mind. It need not be a sinful thought to necessitate being quickly addressed. Anything, no matter how important it may seem, mustn't distract you from the spirit engagement and spirit-assigned work that you are currently engaged in. Stay focused, stay on target. Do not let the alarm go off twice. Command your mind into order, and if need be, keep a pad of paper handy in order to disengage from the thought quickly so that it can be addressed at a more appropriate time. Do not let anything usurp the God priority of your life. A newly arrived email beep? That's the one that always gets me. If I have my email program on and I'm doing a study, I could be in the middle of one of the most important things God has ever been teaching me, and suddenly, ding. Huh? I wonder who would send me an email this early in the morning. I need to check. What a... I'm lacking self-control. Come on, Eric. Buck up. Get that meaty fist out. Stay focused. God's speaking to you right now. Stay tuned. So, a newly arrived email beep, a cell phone buzz. Bzz. Huh. I, I, I really should get that. You're engaged in prayer right now, buddy. Stay focused. You're dealing with the king of kings. Imagine if you're literally in the throne room of grace and God is communicating with you. You're like, yeah, God, I got a, I got a buzz in my pocket. <laughs> He's like, uh, but, but I'm talking with you right now. I know, I have no idea who it is, but I think I should check because it could be very important. What is more important? What is more important? A phone ring. I know people that if the phone rings, they feel a mandate of soul that they have to answer it. They do. It's a strange thing, but we probably should get over it. Or even a knock on the door. If you are writing the king's name, do not budge from your position. That's a statement from the men that used to translate the Bible. If they were ever writing the king's name, and it says, even if the king or another king, foreign dignitary comes in, if you're writing the name of God, you do not move from your position. Even if the king commands you at death, the sentence of death, to leave that pen, drop it. Even if it's a king and he has the authority to take your life, if you are writing the name of Jehovah, you will not stop until you finish. Isn't that a great statement? The measurement of faith. How well do you respond to the bait of doubt? Faith is measured as a span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that your soul beholds the seeming contradiction to the truth of God's word, the efficacy of his promise to his saints, and when your soul cries out with unshaken, unstaggered confidence, here I stand, I will not be moved. When that doubt comes in, how long does that alarm need to go off before you just stand on the word of God and say, I will not budge? My God has promised and he cannot lie. This is the believing man's sole responsibility, to believe his God even when the entire world and all its illusions attempt to confute and refute the realities of the great cross purchase. The alarm must not beep twice. The measurement of joy. How well do you respond to trials? 
Joy is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that your trial of faith, the false accusation, the betrayal, or the harsh, demeaning treatment begins, and the moment the soul shouts out, Rejoice, O my soul. How long does it take for you to finally start rejoicing when you're falsely accused? Most of us, that isn't our first turn. The alarm goes off because you know what? Your attitude in these moments is everything to your inner life. God tells you what to do. Rejoice. And you're like, I don't feel like rejoicing. The alarm's going off. And you're trying, you're feeling a little self-pity. You're allowing in the enemy in and through someone else's behavior. You hold a grievance. I can't believe they did that to me. Suddenly, the enemy is trucking in his goods into your ring. Find your satisfaction. This is all part of the same thing. Rejoice, O my soul. Find your satisfaction, your confidence, and your delight in God Almighty. Consider this pure joy. The joy of the Lord is a saint's secret strength, and therefore the alarm must not beep twice in order that the enemy not gain any advantage in and through his wily attack. The measurement of peace. How well do you respond to the bait of anxiety, fretting, and foreboding? Peace is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that the bad news or the anxiety-baited information arrives in your mental inbox until the moment when you deliberately choose to exclaim within your soul, my hope is fixed on the rock of Jesus Christ. And since he is not shaken and he is not moved, neither will I allow my soul to disgrace him by showing even the slightest measure of anxiety in this moment. Anxiety has no legal right to engage a believer's soul. No legal right, that is, unless the believing soul chooses to entertain it and listen to its counsel. In other words, the alarm must not beep twice. The measurement of kindness. How well do you respond to the needs of those around you? Kindness is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment you comprehend the need of another, or recognizing also the leading of the Spirit to give yourself practically to the situation, and the moment you engage in being a practical answer to that need. The measurement of gentleness. How well do you respond to harsh treatment from others? Gentleness is measured as the span of time that is allowed to pass between the initial moment that you are poorly treated, offended, or otherwise harmed by another person, and the moment in which you choose to respond in an opposite spirit, extend love in return, and choose to forgive their behavior with a blessing-drenched attitude. Wouldn't it be nice if we all responded that way? Without the alarm ever beeping twice? That's Jesus, isn't it? And it is extraordinary. It's a supernatural life, and every one of us needs to just admit it. We can't live that way. That alarm just beeps and beeps and beeps. Some of us don't even have the alarm. The Spirit of God moves in, and he begins to sensitize us. And that alarm goes off. It's a form of conviction. It's a form of correction. Now, now, Eric, now respond. You know how to respond. I don't want to respond that way. And if we yield to self in that moment, if we yield to flesh and old behavior, then we find ourselves being overtaken by the enemy. But if we respond correctly in that moment, guess what emerges out of us? We become a flow-through channel of grace, and what comes out of us? Love. Everything in that list is love. That's what it is. We are a flow-through channel. These are the works of God. Faith without any of these things is dead. This is love. This is the behavior of Christ Jesus. But there's a flesh bait in every one of these situations. You see something visually, and what the enemy says, come on, just give it another look. It's not going to hurt you. That extra look is what kills you. You're not responsible for the first look. You're responsible for the second. You see it the first time, you're not guilty for that. It's what you do in response to it. 
You immediately turn away. Your eyes bounce off. You do not turn it over in your mind. Whatever the enemy wants to bait you with, you do not need to give it another look. Give it a little longer. Famous last words. Just a little longer. It's, it, I mean, you've already gone this far. You might as well just extend it out a little. Uh-huh. It'll make itself comfortable and cozy in your living room, and it won't move. You'll need to come right back to that cross and get the big bulldozer of Jesus Christ to push that big heavy-duty thing out of there. Do not allow the enemy to be hospitable. Do not be hospitable to the enemy in your living room. You deserve this. I mean, you've been working hard, focused on Jesus for two straight weeks. You deserve a little break. Come on. The flesh needs a little satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It'll kill you. God knows you need a little break. Now God's being brought into it. God knows you need a little break. Come on. He knows you can't keep this pace up, this watch over your soul constant. No one can live that way. Jesus can in you if you allow him to. God will forgive this. Talk about taking advantage of the grace of God. God will forgive this. One of the most common baits for modern Christians today. God does forgive. Thank you, Jesus. But is that a license for us to continue in going on sinning? God forbid, says Paul. God will forgive. Do not take advantage of his grace. If you're behaving with that mentality, you have to wonder if you even know who your God is. The sentinel's ready response to every bait of darkness. Here's, here's your soul position. This is what self-control is. This is what you're ready to do with the authority and the clout, the punch of God Almighty living within you. Here is your great quote that you give to the enemy. You ready for this? This is quite profound. <laughs> no! 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 I say no all the time in my soul. In my soul, it's a constant clamor. No, 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 no. And then to Jesus, yes. Yes, 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 Lord, yes, Lord. No! No, no, yes, Lord. My no is so that I stay focused on what I'm supposed to be saying yes to. We do not allow anything into this ring. This territory belongs to Jesus Christ and to him alone. No. It's the great quote of the saints. Father, build us up strong in self-control. Lord Jesus, in and of ourselves, we're weak. And for many of us in here, we only know being defeated in this ring. But Lord Jesus, I pray that we truly would be defined as prize fighters. We would fight for that prize of Jesus Christ, the love of God being made manifest in our lives, the manifold wisdom of God being expressed in and through us, in and through his church. Lord Jesus, give us the strength, give us the grace, give us the power to stand guard and watchful over these souls. And forgive us where we have fallen short. We love you and we trust you, precious King of Kings. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message. But do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. 
If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.